I greet you this Lord's Day in the mighty, magnificent, majestic, and messianic name of our Master, who is Jesus Christ, our Savior, Lord, and King, the one in whom we live, move, and have our very being. What a joy it is to have this time in worship together on this morning. I'm certainly grateful to God, to Dr. Joel Gregory, and to Dr. Ralph West for this invitation to come and share in this significant occasion to Dr. Glower and to Dean Tucker and to all of you that gather here today, I am most grateful for this privilege and opportunity to share. I must say that um, whenever I share at a seminary and see students singing in worship, it brings back fond memories. When I was a student at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, I started the Union Gospel Choir. They didn't have a gospel choir and I started the gospel choir. It went so well that after I graduated, they asked me to continue on as uh, the leader of that particular singing aggregation. And so God bless you all for worshiping and for leading us in our worship this morning. The word of God has already been read in our hearing, but allow our ears to hear it again and afresh. Through the pen of the Apostle Paul in his first missive to the church at Corinth, Paul writes in chapter 2, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Amen. If you'd pray with me and for me during this time where we celebrate one of God's great preaching servants in the person of Dr. E.K. Bailey, who personified preaching at its apex and in the presence of his beloved wife and beloved daughter, and all who are gathered here today, I believe that there's a word that God gives to us through the pen of the Apostle Paul. And if you'd pray with me for the few moments that are ours, I want to talk about pure preaching. Pure preaching. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom. As I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was among you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified, pure preaching. I ask you to keep your Bibles open and do your best not to go to sleep. I don't want you to accuse me of making anything up. The story is told of a Baptist church that was without a pastor. And after several candidates had come in, a particular person preached and the church began to resound with clamor, declaring that is our new pastor. The deacons and officers of the church agreed and they immediately talked to this pastor that had come in as a candidate. And after talking with him, they said, we're clear that you are the one that God would have us to call as our under shepherd. And so the church met and they extended a call to this pastor. And on the very first Sunday of the month, he came to begin his tenure as pastor. He opened up the word of God. 
proclaimed the word of God powerfully, walked through the scriptures exegetically. The people nudged one another with great glee and great delight, affirmation, and said, we knew we had the right one. On the second Sunday, pastor mounted the pulpit, opened up the word of God, and began to walk through the scriptures exegetically, and he continued on with his wonderful skill of using God's word to bring life to people, but he preached from the same text and the same title, but they still heard something different because of the inexhaustibility of the word of God, and they again affirmed he's the right one. On the third Sunday, pastor came to the pulpit, read from the same text, used the same title, walked through the same scripture with the same exegetical execution, and while they were clear that he was indeed the right man for the job, they became a bit concerned. And so some of the members approached the deacons and said, um, if by chance he is so audacious as to come next Sunday and preach from the same passage with the same title and the same exegesis, we need you to talk to him. On that fourth Sunday of the month, the pastor returned to the pulpit, opened up the word of God to the same passage, announced the same title, and walked through the scriptures with the same exegetical execution. When the service concluded, the deacons asked if they might have an audience with the pastor in private. He welcomed them into his office. He said, what can I do for you, brothers? They said to him, Pastor, we and the members are a bit concerned. We are sure that you are the man that God would have to be our pastor. But we are a bit concerned that you keep preaching the same sermon every Sunday. And our question to you, Pastor, is do you have another sermon? Pastor leaned back in his seat, took off his glasses, folded his arms across his midsection, and he said, I do have another sermon, but the reason I keep preaching this one is you haven't gotten it yet. When the Apostle Paul writes this missive to the church at Corinth, he comes to them with the same old message about the same old Jesus because they obviously hadn't gotten that message yet. They were squabbling over personalities, whether one was of Cephas, another was of Paul, another was of Apollos. Paul said, you need not be caught up in personalities. All you need be mindful of is Jesus Christ and him crucified. The apostle Paul focused their attention on Jesus Christ because that is where every Christian's focus should be. And that is where every preacher's emphasis must be, on Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul describes for them and for us what pure preaching is. What he really does is he helps those who listen to preaching understand how to identify pure preaching when they hear it. And then he describes for those who engage in preaching how to have a litmus test, if you will, 
of knowing that you have engaged in pure preaching. When you consider this, the relevant question then quickly becomes, how do I know pure preaching when I hear it? And how do I know that I've engaged in pure preaching when I've attempted it? Well, we may need to pause for a moment and just consider what preaching is. Most of us know by now that well-quoted emphasis by Phillips Brooks about preaching, that preaching is truth through personality, that God uses God's truth through our unique personalities to communicate good news to other people's ears. Preaching, what is preaching? It is the clarion call for dust and divinity to come to the table and dine together. What is preaching? Preaching is the act of blowing breath like a trumpeter into an instrument through which it can make what Samuel DeWitt Proctor would call a certain sound. When you understand what pure preaching is, you understand that pure preaching is what William Augustus Jones would call a divine symphony played out on the human tongue. That pure preaching is that clarion call that allows the condensation of eternity to break in on passing moments of humanity. When you understand what pure preaching is, you understand pure preaching is declaring the euangelion that is the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ without the need of any props, without the need of any antics, without the need of anything extra that the gospel of Jesus Christ can be preached effectively by itself because it alone is pure in its essence. When you understand what real preaching is, you understand that biblical preaching in and of itself has a purity that does not need the assistance of the proclaimer. Pure preaching is what Paul speaks to them about. And Paul says, if you want to know pure preaching when you hear it, if you want to know what pure preaching is when you've done it, there are three things to call to your attention that characterize pure preaching. If your Bible's open and you're not going to sleep, I promise I won't make anything up. Because in verse number one, Paul says, when I came to you, my brothers, my sisters, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. The first thing that characterizes pure preaching is a pure methodology, a pure methodology, a pure methodology. Note, if you will, that Paul says, I did not come to you with eloquence or wisdom. When he says this, he is suggesting to them that he could have come to them in order to display his academic acumen because he was well-versed in the Old Testament because he spoke several languages fluidly because he had sat at the feet of Gamaliel because he was an apostle of apostles, a Jew of all Jews. He certainly could have come to the preaching task in order to parade his own persona. But he chose 
that his methodology, his approach to preaching would not be esoteric, it would not be empty, and it would not aim to entertain. Paul made a conscious decision that when he approached the task of preaching, that he would preach the gospel in such a way that when he had concluded that people will have seen the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of a story about a young girl who went to church one day with her mother. The pastor became ill and couldn't make it that day. The pastor was very tall. And behind the pulpit was a stained glass portrait of Jesus. Because of the height of the pastor, Jesus was not always visible. And it didn't hit this mother until this Sunday when the pastor was ill and his friend who came to preach in his place, who was shorter, took the pulpit. And when he took the pulpit, the little girl leaned over to her mother and she said, Mommy, where's the man that usually keeps us from seeing Jesus? Sometimes we can be so caught up in ourselves that our preaching prevents people from seeing Jesus. Paul approached preaching with a pure methodology to lift up Christ and not himself. C.S. Lewis went to hear a young friend of his preach one day. And when he went to hear his friend preach, his young colleague was preaching with great elocution. And as he continued throughout his sermon, he was doing exceptionally well. He got towards the conclusion of his sermon and he said these words, My dear friends, if you do not come to know Jesus, you will experience eschatological ramifications. At that point, C.S. Lewis's spirit sank. Sermon had been going exceptionally well. He got to the end and decided to use words that would display his education. When C.S. Lewis had tea with him after service, he was reviewing the message and complimenting his colleague on what a wonderful message it was. And he said to him, uh, there was one thing that I noted, however, in your message. As you began to move toward a conclusion, you said to us, that if we did not come to know Jesus, we would experience eschatological ramifications. He said, did you mean to say that if we do not accept the Lord Jesus Christ, then we will die and go to hell? The young man said, that's exactly what I meant. C.S. Lewis said, well, next time, say that. Our methodology can become so enamored with our homiletical and hermeneutical skills that we work so hard to hone that we can cause people to catch us but miss Jesus. John Henry Jowett said that we never reach the innermost room in any man's soul by the expediencies of the showman or the buffoon. I like the way that great preacher Jonathan Edwards put it, so many of us want to highlight our skills and our abilities, but 
Jonathan Edwards said that if a minister has light but no heat and entertains the hearers with learned discourse without a savor of the power of godliness or any appearance of fervency of spirit and zeal for God and the good of souls, he may gratify itching ears and fill the heads of his people with empty notions, but it will not be very likely to teach their hearts or to save their souls. When we preach, we are not to parade our own persona, but we are to lift up the Lord Jesus Christ in our proclamation. Because when Paul says that I did not use eloquence or wisdom as I proclaimed to you the word of God, that word for proclaim there is katangelo. It means to make known. And if we're going to engage in pure preaching with the pure methodology, at the end of the day, our preaching must be clear as it highlights the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a second thing about pure preaching that will help you to know when you've heard it and when you've done it, not only a pure methodology, but secondly, a pure message. A pure message, a pure message. Verse two, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. For I resolved, krino in the Greek, which means that I made a conscious decision to downplay other things that I know because all else that I know pales in comparison to who I know and who I proclaim. <laughs> he said, I resolved to know nothing while I was among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. When you trace the preaching of the Apostle Paul, his consistent message in every letter is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let me say to you, my dear brothers and sisters, let us never grow weary of preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. There is no other message that is as pure as preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's a redundant message. It's a repetitious message. It is a redemptive message. We are to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified until men, women, boys, and girls come to believe in that same Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord. This is so critical in this 21st century. There is so much preaching that can be done in the name of Jesus Christ that never even mentions Jesus Christ. Whatever you do, if you are a preacher of the gospel or want to be a preacher of the gospel or just a child of the gospel, do not weary in the purity of the message that Jesus died and Jesus rose for our sins. I like the way Timothy George put it. Timothy George says that those who take seriously their charge to proclaim God's life-giving word of judgment and grace will not succumb to sloppiness in speech, extemporaneous fluff, or pedestrian banality that can neither rise to majestic heights nor stoop to lend a sympathetic ear. <laughs> When we understand how powerful the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified really is, every time we stand, before we sit down, we'll tell somebody he died. And oh, 
African-American Baptist preaching tradition, it does not matter what text, what genre that a preacher's preaching. The old Baptist preacher would not sit down, would not close his mouth, would not stop speaking until he told everyone listening he died. He could be preaching about Abraham. He could be preaching about Ezekiel. He could be preaching about Ruth. He could be preaching about Naomi. But before he sat down, he would tell everybody he died. When I was a young preacher, I didn't understand that, Dean Tucker. I became weary as a PK of hearing my daddy close every sermon by saying he died. And it would seem as if they'd get a little bit irritated if people did not really respond to the news that he died. So the preacher would just say it over and over and over again. He died. He died. He died. And then if the congregation still wasn't engaged, then they'd make it a rhetorical question. Didn't he die? Didn't he die? Didn't he die? And then they'd move to personal testimony. I know he died. I know he died. I know he died. And the next thing you know, he'd say, I'm glad he died. I'm glad he died. I'm glad he died. Not only did he die, but he rose on the third day morning with all power in his hands. When we fail to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified, we might as well close up our Bibles and mute our mouths because the greatest pure message that we can ever proclaim is that Jesus Christ died and rose for us. Paul says, when I came to you, I, I did not come with eloquence or wisdom as I proclaimed to you the word of God. For I resolved, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Pure preaching has a pure methodology. It has a pure message. But finally, pure preaching has a pure motive. A pure motive. The motive must be significant because Paul takes three verses to work this out. He says in verse number three, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. Paul says the motive of the preacher is manifested in the mood of the preacher. The M-O-O-D, the mood of the preacher. What is your mood as you approach the preaching task? What characterizes your mood when you approach the privilege of being a spokesperson for Almighty God? What type of mood overwhelms you when you consider that you are an emissary of the eternal? If your confidence in self is so great that you are not intimidated by the task, you need to go back into the prayer room. Paul says that when I approached preaching the gospel, there was a mood that accompanied my preaching because I began to come to this task in weakness and fear and in trembling. <laughs> he uses the Greek word asthenia here for weakness. It suggests 
that he felt a sense of inadequacy. If you think that you've mastered preaching, you are naive, sophomoreish, ignorant, and I may dare even say stupid. When you approach the sacred desk with the assignment of handling the holy with sinful, unclean hands, with sinful and unclean lips, there can be no audacity or gall in you at all. Rather, you must approach it declaring within yourself, I am not adequate to handle the holy. Weakness. But he says, I also came in fear. Phobia is the word that gives us our English word phobia. It suggests an inward emotion that fears failure. In the African-American preaching tradition, there is a term that is used to help the preacher guard against failure in preaching. Preachers in the African-American tradition will often say, whatever you do, don't flunk. You don't want to flunk when you're preaching. That, that's, that's another way of saying that when you come to the preaching task, there should be a dependence upon the Spirit of God to empower you to do what you could never do on your own and what you will fail at doing if you attempt it on your own. I don't care how great of a hermeneut you are. I don't care how great of a homiletician you are. I don't care how great of an exegete you are. I care not how much you study, how much you fast, how much you pray, how wonderfully you craft and draft your sermon. If when you stand, God's spirit does not breathe upon you and breathe in you, you will be a failure. And so you never trust your preparation more than you trust the paraclete. You never lean more on your sermon than you lean on God's spirit. Because there should be a mood that says, I'm weak, I'm inadequate, I, I'm fearful because I could fail on my own. But then he also says, trembling. It's in your Bible, verse 3, he says, in weakness, in fear, and in trembling. This, this word tremo suggests an inability to meet all that is required, but doing one's best nonetheless. It's almost like a batter who comes to the plate knowing that the pitcher can pitch in such a way that it will only be chance that allows the batter to hit the ball. But the batter comes to the plate with bat in hand anyway to take their best swing. When you come to the preaching task, your mood should be, there's no way I can preach this sermon, but I'm willing to stand and trust God to use me in spite of me. When you come to this sacred desk, your dress, your skirt, your pants ought to be trembling behind the desk though no one can see it. 
There ought be nervousness inside of you every time you mount the pulpit. I tell preachers, if you're not nervous when you get ready to preach, you should become scared because your nervousness is a reminder of your utter dependency upon God to do for you, in you, through you, and in spite of you, what you could never do on your own. There's a mood, but then there's also a manifestation. Verse 4. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. (laughs) If you approach this task of preaching properly and your mood is right, then there will be also a manifestation that affirms your motive. Because if you lean on the Lord, (laughs) the Lord will show up. Oh, I'm not talking about through emotion. I'm talking about through a power that exceeds the limitations and finitude of your emotions. The Holy Spirit will show up, breathe on you, breathe on God's word and allow it to give life to those who hear it. At a certain point in the preacher's preaching, it's recognizable from the pew when the Holy Spirit has shown up. And in the African-American preaching tradition, the preacher would very often say, I feel my help coming on. That was a way of saying there's now a manifestation of the spirit in the sermon that has confiscated the human, that has confiscated the flesh in order that the spirit may rise and do God's bidding. Paul said there was a manifestation of God's power in the midst of my preaching and finally and I bid you good day final thing that confirms the motive of your preaching is not only the mood of preaching and the manifestation of preaching but the miracle from preaching it's in your bible verse 5 Paul says so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom but on God's power. What's the miracle? Lives are transformed through the word God preaches through the preacher. You and I do not have the power to change anybody's lives. We couldn't even change our own. But through the preaching of the gospel, God works miracles and preaches through us in a way that changes people's lives. So much so the people will come up to you after you proclaim God's word and say, I don't know how you knew what I was going through, but that word was for me. It was as if you'd been reading my emails or my text messages. It was as if you had a camera where you were able to secretly spy on my life because what God said through you characterizes everything I've been going through. And because of God's word through you, preacher, now I can go on. Now I'm assured God is with me. Now I know I can make it. Now I have a peace in the midst of my storm. Of course, the greatest miracle that comes through our preaching is the salvation of souls. 
That's why Paul said in his letter to the church at Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. Ultimately, brothers and sisters, the miracle comes through preaching, not through performance, through preaching a pure gospel that has a pure methodology, a pure message, and a pure motive. And so then what is the responsibility of every preacher? Preach the gospel. The hymn writer captured it well. How to reach the masses, men of every birth. For an answer, Jesus gave the key. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Don't exalt the preacher. Don't exalt the pew. Preach the gospel simple, full, and free. For I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. There was an old song that we used to sing in the church when I grew up as a boy. I wish somebody would help me lift Jesus. I wonder who will help me lift Jesus. I wonder if there's a preacher that will help me lift Jesus. I wonder if there's a deacon that will help me lift Jesus. I wonder if there's a choir that will help me lift Jesus. Is there an usher that will help me lift Jesus to lift him higher and higher and higher and higher? Because he said, I'll draw all men unto me. That's why the most reckless thing that they could have ever done to Jesus was lift him up on the cross. Because he had already told them that if you want to take my life, you can't take it. I lay it down to my own accord. But if I lay it down, I pick it back up again. And when they lifted him up, God put him on the jumbotron of the universe so that the whole world could see the manifestation of God's love and the extent to which God would go to save lost humanity. And even when he went down into the grave, he couldn't stay down. He had to get up Sunday morning with all power in his hands. And so if you're going to preach, preacher, there's only one thing to preach. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is pure preaching. 